Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the final meeting of the House January 6th Committee today, at which four criminal referrals to the Department of Justice to indict Donald Trump were voted on along with their final report, which will be released to the public on Wednesday. Joining us to assess the value of the public House January 6th committee hearings that laid out a clear culpability of Trump as the leader of an insurrection against American democracy and the Constitution he had sworn to protect and defend is Corey Brettschneider, a professor of political science at Brown University where he teaches constitutional law and politics as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath in the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, and his latest book is Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. Then we'll look into what was achieved at the UN's COP15 conference that just ended in Montreal, aimed at preserving 30% of what is left of the planet's biodiversity by 2030. Joining us is Zach Smith, Senior Attorney and Director of of the Global Biodiversity Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council, where he leads their global strategy to tackle the two primary drivers of nature's decline, ecosystem destruction and direct exploitation of species. He focuses on engaging with international agreements that are coordinating a global response to the biodiversity crisis and was in Montreal for the UN's COP15 Biodiversity Conference. Then finally, with Putin meeting today with the Belarus dictator to put the squeeze on Lukashenko to join in a Russian winter offensive from Belarus to open up a new front in the north in Putin's war against Ukraine, we'll speak with Dr. Tatsyana Kulakovich. She is a researcher on Eastern Europe at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty in the University's Institute on Russia, who was born and raised in Belarus. Her research focuses on international political economy, migration and protest politics, and she has a recent article at the Washington Post, Four Reasons Belarus Isn't Likely to Send Troops to Ukraine. Fighting Russia's war would not help Lukashenko stay in power. And joining us now is Corey Brechneider, who's a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, and his latest book is Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. Welcome to Background Briefing, Corey Brechneider. Thanks, Ian. Looking forward to uh, talking as always. Well, thanks for joining us. And today was the final meeting of the January 6th committee. They, it wasn't a hearing so much as a, a retrospective of what they put together. They had a video kind of uh, compilation of the highlights, I guess, and did brief summaries from each of the Congress people on the panel, including, of course, the, the two Republicans along with the Democrats. And they made an extra referral from what we were expecting. We were expecting them to refer to the Department of Justice, 18 U.S.C. 2383 for insurrection, 18 U.S.C. 1512C for obstruction of justice, and 18 U.S.C. 371 for conspiracy to defraud the United States, and they added to that a fourth charge, conspiracy to make a false statement. So it's the rest of it's in the hands of the Department of Justice. What do you think the impact will be of this referral? 
Well, there's no, of course, in direct impact. It's not like Congress can order um, the Department of Justice, which is part of the executive branch, to uh, indict the president. But what it does, I think, is a couple of things. Um, the first is it presents in a very public way the massive amount of evidence for why President Trump should be indicted and why he did commit at least these crimes. And of course, there are other ones that we could talk about that, that I think they uh, considered recommending and that remain possibilities like seditious conspiracy, which the uh, head of the Oath Keepers, for instance, was recently convicted of. So it, it pre presents just this massive amount of evidence. It doesn't sort of hide the ball and pretend uh, to not have a conclusion the way that uh, Mr. Mueller did. Uh, and it really says, you know, here's the evidence and here's the argument. So just that publicity and that argument, uh, I have to believe, has to, at, at minimum, uh, make the Department of Justice leery, leery of certainly just ignoring the issue. They'll have to respond at minimum, and they'll have to consider it because they've not only seen this recommendation, but they've seen the massive evidence for it. And then the second thing I think is more controversial, but it is certainly part of what's going on, which is in addition, just making the, the case directly to the Department of Justice with them watching, the audience matters. The entire American public is now aware of why Trump did commit these crimes. And that puts a kind of important political pressure on the Department of Justice. Now, normally, the usual thing is to say, well, the Department of Justice is supposed to be immune to public pressure. But here, I think it really does matter because they're weighing not just the guilt or innocence of President Trump, but they're deciding whether or not this will kind of upset the stability of the American democracy. They have a long history in that department of not wanting to um, destabilize the, the American public. But what the American public, I think, are rightly clamoring for is the kind of stability that comes from holding up the rule of law. So I think in this case, it really is an appropriate counterweight to that reluctance, that conservative impulse in that department. And along with the January 6th panel issuing criminal referrals to the DOJ to indict Trump on four counts, also the attorney, if you could call him that, uh, John Eastman, who tried to come up with this false elector stuff and put the squeeze mm. on Vice President Mike Pence, he was mentioned a number of times as also being a part of a criminal referral. So I guess, remember what Hirschman said to him, apparently, the other White House attorney, get yourself a good lawyer. I guess that <laughs> advice holds, right? That's right, in the meeting. Right, in the meeting. Yeah, and, you know, I can't, I have to say, I know I, some of your, well, I know you're based on the West Coast, some of your listeners might know Eastman, who um, taught at a variety of law schools out there and um, was part of the Claremont Institute. Um, I went to Pomona, so that's a issue that, that kind of hits home. Uh, this was, in many ways, the mastermind of the theory and the idea that motivated Trump to think that he could do this. Uh, you know, this is somebody who's supposed to have the responsibility of being a, a constitutional scholar, and he just came up with this complete BS account of how really, among other things, the vice president under the Constitution has the ability to just decertify electoral votes and and throw into chaos the uh, decision of the American people. That was, uh, to my mind, yes, part of a conspiracy 
Uh, it seems to me to be seditious. That's not the specific recommendation here. Um, it seems to fit the definition of, of fraud and the sort of encouragement to uh, lie about what, what happened. Uh, so, yes, I think it's a great thing that they did that, that they didn't leave Eastman out of it. He's a, a complete part of the puzzle. As much as the people on the ground, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the people who are really standing trial, the people who are, who are you know, really the ground troops, uh, we've got to see the top, top people held to account. Certainly that's President Trump, and I also do think that includes John Eastman. Well, but that applies, Corey, to what Jack Smith is doing, which is the investigation into the theft of highly classified government documents which were kept at Mar-a-Lago by Trump. How can the DOJ have any security in terms of government secrecy and the laws that protect government secrets? Invariably, the, the government goes after people, you know, like a CIA whistleblower or an NSA whistleblower right. and throws the book at them. But these are right. small fry compared to President Trump. So if you don't take that seriously, that he stole these documents and God knows what's happened to them and where they've gone and who's seen them, you can't go after the small fry and let Trump off the hook, surely. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I mean, we have a long history of seeing whistleblowers who are really giving information to the press and the public interest. You know, think of Snowden, think of the earlier leak of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, these are instances of individuals who face prosecution. And, you know, here we have an instance of somebody who wasn't doing anything in the public interest. He was seizing these documents, you know, at, at, at best out of negligence, at worst, for something more nefarious, totally mismanaging how they were cast, you know, with the easy ability of foreign governments to, to, to get a hold of it. If, if the issue, you know, in, in prosecuting these supposed prosecutions of whistleblowers is national security, now here we've got that argument times 10. And uh, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think uh, it's, I wouldn't call it equal to January 6th, which really was a threat to the very existence of our democracy, uh, maybe the most serious uh, attempt to really overthrow the government coming from the person who is in the most position, and this is just speaking now empirically, you know, throughout the world where we have presidential systems, the, one of the main ways you get coups is a self-coup, what, what comparative uh, politics scholars call self-coup, where the president just tries to stay in power. Of course, the president has the control over the commander and chief power over the military, uh, the risk is so high. And even though it didn't happen, um, we were, I believe, incredibly close to something much, much worse. And probably the closest that we've come, certainly since the Civil War, to the to the end of American democracy. It was that serious. Um, so that's the thing I've been focused on. Uh, but in any other world where that unprecedented thing didn't happen, I would be saying that about the issue of these records, that it's just so reckless. Now, of course, the Department of Justice knows a lot that we don't know. And so I'm, I'm very eager to see, you know, was there some financial motive in keeping these documents? Was there something really nefarious going on? Was he collaborating with a foreign government? That, that then ups it, I think, uh, if that is true, certainly to the level of, uh, January 6th and the and the seditious acts that Trump committed uh, in that regard. 
So back to the January 6th panel, they also, in their last hearing today, or their last session today, they referred four Republican members of Congress to the House Ethics Committee for defying subpoenas from the committee. This includes the House Minority Leader potentially to become the incoming Majority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, depending on how much the crazies uh, stick to their guns of not wanting him to become the next Speaker. And then you've got on top of that Jim Jordan, who, God help us, will be the next chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Andy Biggs uh, of Arizona, who spoke on the ellipse in the the rally that that marshaled the crowd and sent them to the Capitol. And then Scott Perry, who was himself involved in the insurrection. So what does that mean, though, Corey? I mean, there's not a lot of time left before the Republicans come and kill everything. Only, what, two weeks left. So what can the Ethics Committee do in in two weeks? Yeah, we'd have to act fast. I think there's also, you know, we have to be real here that the Republicans are going to take over uh, the House very soon and um, they'll retaliate. And I think they can easily bring, to my mind, bogus charges in the other direction. So I think that's one thing that, that happens here. This isn't a court of law. It is a political body. And so there's a pragmatic decision that has to be made about whether or not to bring uh, charges here. So um, I'm not sure what will happen. I mean, I think basically what the Democrats should do, the Democratic Party should do is to, um, and Democratic members of the Ethics Committee is to do the right thing and to just say, look, this was an unprecedented attack on our democracy. There was in some ways, it looks like an internal uh, dynamic to this, um, encouraging it from within the uh, House chamber as insane and upsetting as that is. And even though there will be retaliation, I think I think the right thing to do is to go ahead and to bring censure motions at, at minimum. And in terms of retaliation on Trump's behalf, what do you expect there? I mean, we haven't heard from Trump, at least not yet. So, you know, there seems to be a lot of caution on the part of the Attorney General Merrick Garland I don't think he wanted to get involved in this at all, but uh, maybe the January 6th committee did light a fire under him, but there was apparently, at least from reports, there was always a concern uh, that Garland had that he didn't want to sort of create some kind of second insurrection. What do you think the chances of that? Well, I think, first of all, that, you know, not, not for any virtuous reason, but now that Rupert Murdoch has turned on Trump, uh, his power is a lot weakened, and partly a result of uh, his complete failure in the midterms. So there is just a reality that that threat of another insurrection, of this really being the next president of the United States, I think it's much more minimal. And how should that play into Garland? I think the pragmatic worry that he's reportedly has of, of not wanting to spark another insurrection or get involved in you know prosecuting the next president of the United States, uh, that becomes less. Uh, less on the table. Another issue to my mind, though, is, you know, if the rule that he's concerned about violating is not prosecuting uh, existing candidates for president of the United States in a normal world, I could understand why that that might be a, a, a understanding of the Department of Justice. Uh, you know, he was being investigated before he declared and the idea that you would want to set up an incentive system 
in which all you had to do to get out of prosecution would be to run for president. I, I think that would be a really bad way to set up uh, uh, the incentive system when it came to uh, powerful people committing, very powerful people committing crimes. So I just don't see the principle here that allows him to say that Trump's involved in politics and so we're not going to prosecute. Um, this was an investigation, criminal investigation, that was underway well before he announced. And uh, we can't allow the announcement to serve as a kind of immunity. Well, since he declared that he's running for president, he's not put forth any program, any platform, any policies for his 2024 campaign run. In fact, the only thing he's come forth with was a great promise that something big would happen, and everybody thought maybe it was going to be some <laughs> presidential announcement of what his new plan is and why he should be elected in 2024. Instead, <laughs> he's selling these uh, cards, these NFTs of, of him <laughs> photoshopped onto the bodies of superheroes and, and the cheesiest <laughs> kind of garbage, you know, yeah. for $99 each. Uh, yeah, there's a collector's one. item, right? <laughs> So exactly. we're descending into farce, aren't we? You know, what's, what's that expression about yeah. tragedy first time around, the second time around it's farce? <laughs> yeah, we're definitely, and we are the second time around. It was tragic the first time. I hope this remains a farce. It certainly is so far. I think, you know, in terms of the raw, we've been talking about the sort of principles and uh, way of thinking about the consequences of what's being done. Uh, there is a kind of raw politics dimension to all this. Uh, no one, I think, who is a believer in the rule of law and democracy wants to see Trump have a chance at the presidency again. And keeping this on the agenda uh, the way that he is, he's not going to be able to uh, drop the issue of the election. It just makes him double down on claiming that it was election denial. And I think that's a very good thing in terms of the his chances uh, of ever becoming president of the United States again, because there's no way that's a winning issue, just trying to relitigate his loss. It emphasizes the idea that he's a loser, the very thing that he's worried about. It keeps us focused in the past, not in the future. And it opens the way for fresh candidates uh, as uh, reprehensible or admirable as they may be to say, look, I've got a different vision of the future and to really steal a lot of the voters that he he had. And so, you know, let him focus on the issues of the January 6th committee. Let him continue to claim election fraud and that he's the subject of a witch hunt and all those old themes. I don't think those are winners when it comes to the next presidential election. So just in closing then, Corey, it would seem to me, at least from my point of view, that the most impressive person on that panel, and I mean, Jamie, Jamie Raskin, yes. obviously an impressive guy, but I still think Liz Cheney was the star and mm. she and Adam Kinzinger, who both of whom have lost their seats in Congress, Kinzinger decided not to run, and Liz Cheney lost her seat to a Trumpster. What do you think is going to happen at the end of the day? We know that history will judge them well, but do you think the worm will turn here and maybe some Republicans will start finding a spine and recognize that the GOP can't be a party of radical right-wing wing nuts? I'm not sure. I mean, I would have liked to have thought that after January 6th, that the part of that party who traditionally talked about the Constitution, believed in it, would have stood up and said, you know, we are not going along with this. This is not conservatism in any way. It's the opposite. It's a 
radical departure from any principle-based approach to politics. It is a kind of quasi-fascism or, fa- I think, full-fledged fascism. The more that we look at it, the more that you see the ground troops in particular of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers uh, and turned on them. But, you know, we did see that to some degree with a couple of members and Liz Cheney, of course, the most prominent. I didn't have that on my bingo card that the Cheney family would turn out to be among the heroes of uh, the post-insurrection America. But she really was, I think, and and I think it's right to call her a hero because she did sacrifice her career that she had built up. Uh, And of course, I don't agree with her policy positions, but on that fundamental thing that I expected to see from most Republicans, uh, we just haven't seen. And, uh, you know, there is a, a sort of cult of personality that's infected that party. And my worry is that with DeSantis or somebody like him, uh, that they'll just take up the MAGA mantle and it'll be under a different name. I have to believe that the recklessness that you see with Trump um, would be hard to replicate. It's partly his, you know, I had a piece called Trump versus the Constitution in 2016. That might have been around the time that we first spoke. And my point was that he just lacked any appreciation or understanding or fidelity, even the most basic principles of the rule of law. And I think that's hard to replicate. I mean, somebody who is just an outright uh, opponent of liberal democracy. So as bad as it is within the party and as much as they're clamoring for that and the party's shown that, I just have to think that at the top, the people that I'm looking at, I don't I don't see anyone being that much of a threat to democracy. A threat, yes, but, but not as extreme a threat as we've just lived through. Well, Corey Brechnada, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. We can take a brief station break and back look into what was achieved at the UN's COP15 conference that just ended in Montreal, aimed at preserving 30% of what is left of the planet's biodiversity by 2030. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alive. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Zach Smith, the Senior Attorney and the Director of Global Biodiversity Conservation Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council, where he leads global strategy to tackle the two primary drivers of nature's decline, ecosystem destruction and direct exploitation of species. He focuses on engaging with international agreements that are coordinating a global response to the biodiversity crisis, and he was in Montreal for the UN COP15 conference, which just ended. Thanks for joining us, Zach Smith. Thank you very much for having me, Ian. So, Zach, first of all, the two countries that didn't show up in Montreal at the UN Convention on Biological Diversity were the Vatican and the United States, and of course, 
we can forget about the Vatican. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of territory and, and a lot of biodiversity. But the U.S. does, and it's an important player. And China chaired the conference, and there were some early reports that the Chinese really not didn't have their hearts in it, I guess is a way to put it. So just if you would address those two issues, the absence of the United States and whether or not China was really on board. Right. So the absence of the United States is a function of uh, the United States not signing on to the Convention on Biological Diversity and or getting it ratified by the Senate, I should say. It actually was signed um, back when this came out of the Rio Convention in 1992 by President Clinton, I believe. And um, but the Senate uh, failed to ratify it. And I don't think that there's anyone who believes that there is a likelihood that uh, any Senate uh, in the recent past or in the distant future is likely to uh, pass uh, any kind of major international environmental treaty uh, going forward. And so that's why the United States wasn't there tech, like officially as a party to the convention. However, the United States is an observer. Uh, President Biden's special envoy on biodiversity, uh, Monica Medina, did attend some of the conference of the parties. And it's my understanding that she had meetings with various parties and did urge them to be ambitious on, on the targets and goals that they were putting forward and negotiating as part of this final global biodiversity framework. With respect to China chairing the, uh, or having the presidency of this COP um, that was hosted by Canada, um, I don't think that China uh, didn't necessarily have its heart in it. I think that China has used language around this idea of being ambitious, but with pragmatism. And I think that many parties were burned by the IHE targets that covered global biodiversity conservation for the 10 years from 2010 to 2020. And none of those targets were fully met. Some of them weren't met at all, and none of them were fully met. And I think that there were some thoughts at the time or going into this conference, I should say, is that perhaps the IHE targets were too ambitious and we wanted there is a strategy, I, I believe, around let's put forward targets that we do achieve and then start to build that kind of momentum going forward. Um, and I think that that's what's expressed in, in, in language around ambition tempered by pragmatism. And in terms of Canada's being the host country and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau urged the big five countries, Russia, Canada, China, and the U.S. and Brazil to adopt the 30 by 30 targets, meaning protecting 30% of the land and oceans by 2030. So did he get the big five countries to adopt the 30 by 30 target? Well, the United States, uh, yes, yes, he did. Uh, the United States uh, did support 30 by 30, even though they weren't a party. President Biden has passed an executive put out an executive order committing the United States to, to um, protecting 30% of the United States' lands, waters, ocean areas by 2030, um, and also has publicly come out 
in favor of an international global target um, of protecting at least 30% of the globe by 2030. And the parties did agree to target three, which is to ensure and enable um, 30 by 30. Um, the challenge around a 30 by 30 was always whether or not it would have qualitative elements within it. Um, it is easy to put forward paper parks where you just put forward proclamations or otherwise designate areas as, as, as meeting your 30, your contribution to a global 30 by 30 target. And then you start to dig a little deeper into, well, how are those parks protected? What exactly is protected? Is it an ecosystem-based approach? Uh, how durable are those protections? And in some cases, those protections start to unravel when you see that they're actually not doing the job of providing the kind of biodiversity services, the ecosystem services that we need to secure life as we know it for future generations. And so that was for, for my organization, the Natural Resources Defense Council. One of the disappointments that came out of this is that while they did commit to protecting 30% of terrestrial and then water, coastal and marine areas by 2030, there was not a particularly strong qualitative element associated with those targets that would drive the kind of protections necessary to secure, secure life as we know it going forward. So at the UN Convention on Biological Diversity in Montreal that just ended, Zach, was it addressed this sort of paradox that indigenous people make up 5% of the world's population, but they control 80% of the world's biodiversity? So there's a massive imbalance there. And these indigenous peoples are, are very weak in terms of their ability to protect. You see what happens in the Amazon, which Bolsonaro and company were looting and continue to loot, the native peoples, the indigenous peoples are often slaughtered. So was that paradox addressed in Montreal? Well, I think it ended up being addressed in a way that all the countries would agree to, including Brazil. They were never going to get consensus um, around a target language that would have disrupted the kind of activities that some of these um, deplorable um actions that are taken by these governments would do. But the target three that was passed did specifically recognize indigenous and traditional territories as part of this system and also ensured that the sustainable use where appropriate in such areas is consistent with conservation outcomes and recognizes and respects the rights of indigenous people and local and local communities, including over their traditional territories. And so I think that the parties understood that there are these challenges. And so they wanted to include language uh, around recognizing and respecting the rights of indigenous peoples. But I wouldn't say that the target language drives a particular result there wasn't anything that suggests, for example, that the development of protected areas has to abide by free prior and informed consent, um, which is a standard that the United Nations has put forward with respect to working with indigenous peoples around a variety of issues, including environmental issues. 
So the indigenous peoples who make up 5% of the world's population and yet control 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity, there's no way, because they're, they're clearly powerless or very weak in terms of their ability to protect what's left of the global biodiversity, is there any regime, was it discussed, the idea of giving them more protection from the outside? So I don't know what, whether that the, means UN peacekeepers or what. I just don't know what the mechanism no. would be, but <laughs> go ahead. No, I mean, there's certainly no mechanism contained within the Convention of Biological Diversity to kind of force the kind of outcomes that we want with respect to justice for indigenous people and local communities when it comes to these kinds of issues. Instead, what the parties have done through the adoption of these goals and targets in more than one location is that they have said, we have these goals, we, we are going to pursue these targets. And in certain areas within the convention as, or within the targets as applicable, they have included language around respecting the rights and recognizing the rights of indigenous peoples and local communities. Now that will then have to get implemented back through how each party interacts with the targets and goals and the, this, this, that are, that's called the global biodiversity framework. When countries go back now that they have a final global biodiversity framework and put together their action plans, they will have to look at this language and say, how are we achieving these goals around indigenous peoples and these targets when it comes to this element of, 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 of meeting my obligations under this target? When I report back to the convention overall and share my story of how we're meeting these targets and goals, um, that's that's the forcing mechanism. And I would have to, I mean, I think you've said it very well, there is no forcing mechanism to ensure that that, that is compelled in a way other than just through governments um, trying to hold each other accountable. And um, so, no, I, if, I don't think that, that I would look at this document as any kind of means by which those kind of activities will be disrupted in the future, except through the potential of governments turning the screws on each other. But they've, they've had those opportunities already and haven't used them. So the other connection that seems obvious is the connection between the loss of biodiversity and the growing crisis of global warming. Is that recognized by all the delegates? I mean, it seems obvious. Yes. Climate change had a specific goal, or I'm sorry, a specific target, that was adopted as part of this global biodiversity framework. Target A talks about minimizing the impact of climate change and ocean acidification on biodiversity and increase its resilience through mitigation, adaptation, and disaster risk reduction. Um, there is a reference to nature-based solutions, ecosystem-based approaches that will also minimize the negative impacts of climate action that would could happen on biodiversity. So there's certainly a lot of climate actions, for example, that can be taken, one can imagine, you know, giant wind farms, those have impacts on birds. There's, that's just a reality. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do the wind farms, it just means we have to be thoughtful about where they're placed. So there is an understanding that we could, we could blindly pursue climate change goals and inadvertently have some very serious consequences for biodiversity. And there's also an understanding that biodiversity has to be an ally in the fight against climate change, both to actually pursue mitigation through nature-based solutions that actually draw down carbon, and at the same time, 
by strengthening ecosystems resilience so that they will be able to adapt to the shocks that are gonna come to those ecosystems as the climate worsens. And if they're in a healthier state to, to respond to those shocks when they do happen, be them a temporary heat event or some other um, type of climate change associated uh, threat, then that they, they gives us more time to, to still benefit from those ecosystems um, while we continue to try to get climate change under control. So in the last few minutes then, uh, Zach Smith, since your work to conserve what's left of the world's biodiversity and the targets that were set in Montreal were 30, protect 30% of what's left of our biodiversity by 2030, and, and we've already been told that we're likely to lose a million species on this planet. As an environmentalist, what's your takeaway? I don't know how you want to rate it. Obviously, we're all trying to be positive here in spite of the dire threats of global warming and the loss of biodiversity. The last thing you want to do is reinforce despair at the destruction of our planet. But at the same time, we've always appeared to be behind the eight ball. But in this case, how would you rate what was achieved here and is what's likely to be enforced? I don't think we do any service to humanity by sugarcoating the scale and scope of the threat we face from the biodiversity crisis, which is an existential crisis in the same way the climate change is. My children and children everywhere are guaranteed a lower quality of life than the lives that we've led. And I think that we need to have honest conversations about that and we have to match that reality against the actions that governments are committing to. And in that context, I would say that this global biodiversity framework cannot be viewed as a success. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't elements of it that are positive, but when taken as a whole, this framework does not compel the kind of transformative, transformative change that's necessary to secure life for future generations. So I, it to me reads very much like a warmed over set of targets and goals, like warmed over Aichi targets, which were the targets and goals that existed for the last 10 years, which I mentioned before that none of them were met. And if that's the kind of approach that we're going to have, we're gonna, we're gonna have the same kind of failures that the Aichi targets had. Now that said, we should look for places where we can, we can find ambition, where we can find countries and opportunities to continue to fight because we, we certainly shouldn't give up. And while I was disappointed with some of, with the overall tenor and pat, tone of this package, um, I was heartened to see countries and regions of the world fighting at, through this conference for more ambition, saying that 30, 30 by 30 with real qualitative elements was important and necessary for their country's survival, saying that we should halt species extinction that's caused by human choices today, not wait until 2050 to do that, which is, is one of the big scandals that came out of this um, global biodiversity framework. 
the failure to commit to end human-caused extinctions now versus at some moment 20 to 30 years from now. So there were countries that were fighting very hard, countries from West Africa, like Nigeria and Niger, who themselves obviously struggle with a lot of issues around poverty and demands on their societies and governments with respect to all the issues that they have to address. And yet they were there on the ground late into the night fighting for the future of the whole planet and also demanding that they they get the resources that are necessary so that they can actually do the job that they want to do. And there are other countries too, like Panama and the Philippines and others in Kenya that were making the same fight. So if we, it's not that we should look at this and say, there's no hope because the global community you know, isn't interested. The, the fact is that there are countries within the global community who are interested and maybe we should spend some time focusing on those countries and trying to ensure that those voice, their voices are not silenced like they were in many cases that I saw in these negotiations where they were rolled over by the chairs at different points um, and not given the kind of respect that they deserve uh, given, given what they're fighting for. Well, Zach Smith, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate you covering this incredibly important topic and um, good luck as you go forward. Well, good luck to the planet. And I thank you for the work that you do. And again, I've been speaking with Zach Smith, a senior attorney and director of the Global Biodiversity Confirmation Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council, where he leads the global strategy to tackle the two primary drivers of nature's decline, ecosystem destruction and the direct exploitation of species. He focuses on engaging with international agreements that are coordinating a global response to the biodiversity crisis, and he was in Montreal for the UN's COP15 conference, which just ended. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into Putin's meeting today with the Belarus dictator, where he put the squeeze on Lukashenko to join in a Russian winter offensive from Belarus to open a new front in the north in Putin's war against Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Tatiana Kolakovich, who's a researcher on Eastern Europe at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the University's Institute on Russia, who was born and raised in Belarus. 
Her research focuses on international political economy, migration and protest politics. And she has a recent article at the Washington Post, Four Reasons Belarus Isn't Likely to Send Troops to Ukraine. Fighting Russia's war would not help Lukashenko stay in power. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Tatsiana Kulakovic. Uh, thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Tatsiana. And today in Belarus capital, Minsk, uh, Putin met with uh, Lukashenko, the dictator. And obviously Putin is there to put the squeeze on uh, Lukashenko to join in what is expected to be a winter offensive from the north, opening a new front in the war in Ukraine. And I guess it was a difficult meeting for Lukashenko. uh, And I'm sure Putin pulled out all the stops. So what's the likelihood then of Belarus joining in with the Russians in a new offensive, which is expected sometime in the next month? Um, thank you, Ian, for your interest and, uh, in, in Belarus. And uh, we need to notice that it is the first visit by Putin to Belarus to see Lukashenko um, uh, within the three and a half years. So it is a rare visit. Normally, Lukashenko visits Putin. And in 2022, since the beginning of war in Ukraine, uh, Lukashenko visited Putin. Putin seven times. So this change of the dynamic between the visits um, might sh- signify the fact that the balance in the relationship uh, between Lukashenko and, and Putin actually changing. Lukashenko might not have wanted to visit Putin again, and Putin came uh, to Lukashenko this time. Uh, the visit took um, this basically Putin and Lukashenko were talking for two and a half hours. It's unclear what they were talking about. Uh, the details are were not announced. Uh, we know that they are saying that uh, the economic questions were, were discussed and, you know, S-400 defense systems were uh, transferred to Belarus. And the very important question uh, or topic that was announced was the um, discussion of the defense system defense, how to say, defense production systems in Belarus. Uh, my uh, my view on this visit is that it's not about, um, you know, Putin all, always wants to pressure Lukashenko to join uh, the war in Ukraine. Lukashenko tries to maneuver, tries to, uh, you know, pretend that he is doing something, but not actually send the Belarusian troops to Ukraine, and it's unlikely, still unlikely, that Belarusian troops will be joining Russia in the war in Ukraine. It is more more likely here is the fact that Putin wants Belarus to produce uh, military equipment for uh, Russia, because uh, with the recent um, mobilization and the preparation for this new offensive that you mentioned, and I would say it's kind of, you know, plant more in a couple of months, more more likely than in the next months, uh, they need to equip these new um, mobilized uh, soldiers, and Belarus can do that. Uh, and it has been doing that already before. Um, so um, uh, Lukashenko will keep providing the territory as a staging ground for uh, Russia to train the soldiers, possibly for the rockets and uh, we'll be trying to stay away and uh, preserve the troops on the Belarusian territory as he has been doing before. 
So, in your article at the Washington Post, four reasons Belarus isn't likely to send troops to Ukraine, Tatiana, you say that Russia has received over 12,000 tons of ammunition from Belarus. So, that's a significant amount of ammunition. So, what are they supplying along with ammunition? So they are, they are sending uh, artillery and uh, all kinds of equipment that Russian soldiers do not need to be trained for. Uh, like, for example, if we compare Ukrainian soldiers that they go to England to train, uh, receive the experience to, uh, you know, operate the Western weaponry, the uh, artillery and uh, tons of ammunition and everything that Belarus is, Belarus is sending to Russia, it's not required, there is no requirement to train for this. And um, we need to notice that the article was written in September and Belarus has been supplying Russia since September till right now. And um, it's getting to the point that, uh, uh, you know, this excess of um, ammunition uh, is kind of, you know, a little bit uh, decreasing. So more, there is more uh, ammunition and equipment to be sent from Belarus. But now looks like face-to-face meeting is necessary to persuade the Belarusian uh, uh, leader to supply more equipment to Russia. And that's one of the questions um, definitely uh, that was discussed today, because Russia needs more uh, more of everything. So I need to mention the, the, the interesting fact that in October, end of October, today is December, but at the end of October, Lukashenko went and visited um, the factories that produce uh, military equipments uh, in Belarus, specifically the factories that produce drones, Belarusian drones. We know that uh, Iran is sending drones to um, Russia and, uh, I mean, selling, and Russia is using that. So now uh, Russia is exploit- exploring the option to get the drones from Belarus as well. And besides the drones, Belarus also. Lukashenko also was examining uh, such uh, such such things as first aid kits, uh, clothing, and all kinds of necessary. Uh, you know, even if it's uh, it may seem minimum or small uh, things that, but they're very very important in winter for the Russian soldiers. So, in other words, Lukashenko is happy to supply equipment, but he doesn't want to supply the men because he fears that. If his army joins in with the Russian army in an offensive from the north against Ukraine, which is very unpopular with the Belarusian people, the Russian army would absorb his army and he would lose control over it. So he's happy to make a compromise. Is that a summary? Well, I would say uh, uh, two things. So, um, you know, the offensive from the north um is might not be actually who knows it's 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 questionable i would say uh it's more effective it's going to be more effective for russia to send all those troops uh towards bakhmut and other places where they are trying to make um progress uh and why not north because in the north uh, now ukrainians are, are waiting for the offensive from the north, and they're not going to be a successful operation if it's going to be coming from the north, because it's not going to be the same as it was in February 2022. So this north offensive, um, you know, it's it might not actually be in the north. 
worse. But again, we don't know. Uh, it's a it's a factor that um, you know personal factors that it's hard to predict. Um, another thing is that. Um, uh, if Belarusian troops uh, are, are going to join or sent by Lukashenko, they are not going to be absorbed by Russian troops, I would say. They w might actually surrender uh, to Ukrainians and join the Ukrainians. That's also a, 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 an opportunity uh, or, or, or an option, I would say. And also, I would say the rest is, you're correct, uh, he is going to be trying to maneuver and um, provide everything uh, that Putin is asking for except sending the Belarusian army and even if he does send Belarusian army it's going to be about again 20,000 people it's not going to change anything and Putin knows that Lukashenko is not interested in that um, so it's more about um, supplies I would say uh, that Putin needs and uh, another another point here is also the question why Putin actually went in person to Belarus uh, and it it is a rare visit. Also, what comes to mind is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting that took place uh, in September, where Belarus received a special status or, or elevated its status with China. And uh, basically, Lukashenko is trying to diversify his uh, his relationships with um, uh, Russia. So because he does, he, he cannot balance as he loves he loved to do before the war before the protests between the west and the east now he's trying to diversify between russia and china so it gives him some kind of leverage to stay away uh from uh, or, or or kind of you know tell putin that basically ask china i cannot go into war because china doesn't want me to do that so that's also um, one of the reasons uh, lukashenko can use to stay away from uh, sending the troops actually well clearly ever since the uh, massive protests against the theft of the last election have driven lukashenko more into putin's arms but he's still as as you've made clear tatiana he still is doing his best not to be completely taken over by Putin, and the army is, what, 45,000, and it's mostly conscripts. But like all dictators, uh, Lukashenko has his Praetorian Guard, the Belarusian Special Forces, about 6,000 people, and he needs them to hold on to power, doesn't he? So you were suggesting earlier that if he does send the military in with the Russians, and assuming that they, they do invade from the north, although your point is taken that there may be going after more after Bakhmut than facing the new defences that the Ukrainians have put up in the north. After all, back in February, they did invade from the north to try and a quick way to get to Kiev, but that, of course, failed. So there are a few Belarusians fighting with the Ukrainians, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, it's a um, it's it's a battalion uh, under uh, uh, called after Kalinowski, and um, they are fighting for the freedom of Ukraine. But the 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 um, final uh, goal they have is to free Belarus, actually their home country. Also, uh, you know, there are talks that there are trainings going on in Poland. Uh, of uh, the volunteers who want to free Belarus, they are actually, uh, you know, tra training to use weapons 
and um, be prepared when the opportunity opens for new protests and for the new beginnings in Belarus, when possibly that might be when Ukraine wins uh, the war. So this time Belarusians uh, uh, are discussing plans and actual actions to be to be fulfilled um, unlike they had in 2020. So that means that Lukashenko must be kind of even more worried and he must be thinking, What's, what has Putin got me into? I would say uh, you're exactly right, you know, uh, because... Um, uh, we know, and there are documents already exist that um, Russia wanted to complete its uh, um, special military operation uh, in three days, or like three days to a week, and um, uh, Lukashenko was counting on that to be on the side of the Vic- Victorian part and um, benefit from uh, the victory Russia would would have achieved, uh, also considering that he doesn't have, he, he also didn't have a choice, but um, that was the plan, definitely. But now he realized, and he realized that uh, some time ago, looks like it, that um, it's not looking promising, and um, he is already involved, but using this, uh, window or this, how to call it, even this opportunity to say that I only provided the territory, we are not involved in the war, and at least uh, trying to sell this message to the domestic audience that's in the country which is not really, um, you know, buying all these uh, messages after the 2020 protests, but also trying to sell this message to the West. And we know that he tried to do that um, with the currently deceased uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, McKay. And it was, I think it was in April, even already in April, he tried to... Um, start making connections with the West. It was an, an, uh, unsuccessful, but that's a sign that he realized that it was not a good bet, even though he didn't have a choice in any way. Well, Dr. Tatiana Kulakovich, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me, Ian. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Bye.